Well, if you're not running up a hill and you're not working, right, and actually getting something and sweating, it doesn't feel like you do anything, right? Isn't that what they say? You got to work hard for things, right? Got to bust your ass. Well, welcome everyone. And I'm sorry that I'm doing this in the evening. It's only because in the morning I'm dealing with um, doctor's appointments. So I've shifted the hours um, this week so that way I can... Uh, attend to personal matters. Uh, so I apologize for that because I do know that a lot of you wait for them at noon and I sincerely apologize. I will move it back once um, everything's done. I mean, they only take blood and do stuff, you know, in the mornings as usual. Now, today we can sit and talk about the theft in Georgia. We could talk about how it looks like we're failing everywhere we go. <laughs> Very good perception, too. It's uh, worrying a lot of people. And for me, it's going exactly as it should, though delayed. Delayed. Now, I have to say there's a lot going on. Uh, A lot of changes are happening. And I hope that everyone has taken heed to what I said to read your city charters, city rules, city laws. Uh, It's going to be very vital in 2023 that you take those and rip them to shreds. And there is a growing concern for that, which we'll talk about another time. I'm hoping that all of you read and see how much power either your mayor or city council members have over your voice and to also see how the procedure to remove them are. I know a lot of people think that it's by state and you have to wait. Every single charter has a different thing and you have to be paying attention to what your city councils are doing. It's very, very, very important that you pay attention to that because they're starting to put in the groundwork. Now, aside from kind of just running through what people believe is news, I wanted to introduce you to a guy that I met Now, I've broken bread with uh, very different kinds of people in my life, majority of which have seen me in disguise, of course, and you would never tell the difference. One person that I met, actually, I ran into them accidentally while visiting um, my little sister when she was studying in Oxford, um, is a guy who I consider to be the devil incarnate, if not like the minion, right? And I, one would say, well, why would, we, would you sit down with someone so evil for the same reasons that I would sit down with Genghis Khan or, uh, you know, Nimrod to try to figure out where it went wrong? Does that make sense? You know how sometimes where you just meet someone twisted and you're just like, I just want to know where it went wrong because at one point this, this, person was a two-year-old child, eyes wide open with the world as um, its oyster. Now, this person is young and someone that a lot of people don't talk about. And I was wondering today, you know, should I delve into the Coin Intel Pro, which I wanted to. But I, I, I saw a post where someone who I admire mentioned, and I was like, you know what? I think... We should talk about Yuval. Now, I've showed you a video of him talking about things that are real, that terrified people when they heard it come out of the mouth of someone else on a stage. Yet, 
I've already kind of touched upon it over the years. And obviously demonstrated why I believed Andrew Yang was, well, he was part of that timeline. And the reason is, is because we have a, a growing group of persons that believe they know best. Well, we already know that, don't we? Because they vote for us. I mean, they select for us, right? They tell us who, what, when, and where, and how we must sit, stand, take vaccinations, comply with everything they say, because they know best. So before I introduce you to Yuval, let's talk about what's in the news. Something that went completely undetected, and I didn't see a lot of people talking about, is a massive arrest that happened in Germany. And I say this because I was shocked that there weren't people talking about it, right? Because it's huge in Germany. And you're going to be like, nobody cares about Germany. Well, the thing about Germany that you should care about in respects to this is that it was a, a, an organization that was looking to overthrow the government. Now, in that sense, what is this coup and whatnot that you're talking about, Tori? Because I don't hear about it. Well, there was a group of people that believe that some guy is the rightful descendant of Prussia, uh, Heinrich, so, Heinrich uh, the Eighth. Um, I want to tell you why this is important. This guy is, they're trying to tie him to QAnon as well, of course, right? Why not? But they arrested Prince Heinrich the Eighth and 25 uh, other people, part of a far-right plot to overthrow the state. Now, one will say, well, that's kind of dumb. I mean, you need a lot to be able to overthrow the whole government. I agree. I agree. So then the question is, why did they arrest them? If it's 25 people, why would they sit out there and tell the public that they're concerned that they were going to be overthrown? Because it's a lot bigger than what they tell you. Because there are a lot of things happening in the background that not many people understand. Let me share this news um, newscast. Here we go. Oops. We suck at making sure that everything is visible. Here we go. Keep in mind that um, he is uh, 71 years old. They are looking to get rid of the post-Nazi German regime. There's not any volume. And, And they're not talking. Hold on, let's see. They're not talking in this clip. It's just showing the raid and collecting these people that were armed. Armed. They were armed. And so Germany is undergoing struggles right now with people trying to take back their government. And one should ask themselves, why would the Germans be so adamant 
in taking back their government. These are the same people that did not take the vaccine, that um, warned the people. These are thousands of people that have gathered together in a, in a plot that seems to be peaceful, but they claim it is being done with weapons. Now, I'll tell you why this is happening and how they are not afraid of being targeted or that their government will collapse or anything like that. The concerns here that they have are that people are starting to listen. We have uh, right now at this moment a nation like Germany and many others that are questioning the vaccines, that are questioning the adult, adult sudden death syndrome, that are questioning the deployed technology to monitor people. Now, the Attorney General of Germany said that they're a domestic terrorist organization, and they apparently were formed um, around uh, Heinrich um, H.R., his, his Royal Majesty, the Eighth, and their aim was to eliminate the existing state order that exists in Germany um, and what they consider to be the free democratic base order in Germany, which is obviously not free or democratic, but whatever. Um, the people that were arrested were arrested uh, in, at the same time. And for very specific reasons, these are people in high positions within universities, high positions within businesses, within their own cyber oligarchy that are tired of the tyranny. And this tyranny is being pushed on the people globally as a way of protection, as a way of the future. And this is uh, troubling for many. Uh, there are a lot of people that are discussing issues with religion. We have a lot of um, warped opinions that are coming through. In fact, Reason published an article today called Why Rationalist Religions Fail. And this is important because today we're going to talk about someone who praises the Antichrist hands down. Uh, this is going to upset many people uh, getting introduced to this guy. You've seen him before. I've showcased him, but never delved into my conversations and my meeting with him to understand why. And And one may say, why what? Well, in our society right now, we have multiple nations undergoing the same trials. The trials of independence. Many are starting to understand that uh, the illusion of being free is uh, simply that, an illusion. And it is raising serious concerns for people in regards to how the future will be. It's warranted. It's merited. And it's escalating.
And the reason it's escalating because there's a lot of things happening that people do not see. There are a lot of people working in the background. When we see a pivot, the pivot will be when we see Julian Assange being pardoned, but they are holding on to that one. Carrie Lake filed a lawsuit and her attorneys have been sanctioned by a judge. They should not bend the knee. They need to move forward. Regardless if done correctly or incorrectly, those are just opinions. Everyone does the best they can at the time they can with what information they have. But the 30-page opinion that the federal judge ordered sanctions against Carrie Lake's attorneys and Mark Fitchum's attorneys about the lawsuit against the voting machines was done in order to deter people from doing similarly baseless suits in the future. It is not baseless. Our elections are not free. Our elections are not transparent. And our elections are not fair when you are not able to see them count. It doesn't matter who casts a vote. It's who counts it. And when you have technology doing the counting for you, technology that you program, technology that requires programming, then you are at the mercy of the person that creates the program. And unfortunately, none of you are allowed to know who that is. Well, they'll tell you it's a private company, but then the private company will tell you it's an escrow. And then that escrow links up to a global company that is tied into global intelligence, again, centering from Luxembourg. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just a grifter. Grifting means you do absolutely nothing and just skate by. I work my ass off and I've put my life on the line to put this out there. Still get irritated. Can't help it. Now, aside from that, um, I found out that, well, this morning I was talking with one of my attorneys, um, very briefly for something else. And they were like, well, you know, maybe they'll have you on the January 6th conference. Actually, ideally, I'd like to file a response before anything, um, kind of just to readdress the issue. But January 6th is when this conference is happening to discuss. So obviously, it's not moot, obviously, because this is repeatable in the future, which will cost somebody else $80,000 in fees and printing and mailing and litigation to get it sorted, probably not enough time again, making it moot and redundant again, which makes me really, really question, you know, Benjamin Flowers, who, who um, clerked for Scalia, I guess maybe he just wanted it to happen and thought he's not going to respond. He's the Solicitor General uh, for the state of Ohio. And he actually fought the COVID, vax, uh, COVID mandates, but he fought them only so that the state can have more control over what they do. And I want to explain to you this heroic, in, misinterpreted heroic action by state's attorney generals and uh, um, governors of your states that you think like you, and they're uh, telling you how they're protecting you. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with freedom. It has everything to do with power. 
nothing can actually stop what is to come. And that's the redrawing of borders as it always happens in war, regardless if it's a civilized war or uncivilized. And states require to maintain the power. We had this discussion before in regards to all the colonies not wanting to give out power to, you know, create a federal system back in the day. The same thing. If we're going to have the cities in the country, states are going to be negotiating their power place, their power cities. We've talked about smart cities for years here. People are starting to see it now. Apparently, it's news now. It's quite unfortunate in the era and in the age of information, ignorance is actually the choice for many. And disinformation and propaganda is what you usually get. Now, my Supreme Court case is going to be discussed on January 6th. Fantastic. Since, you know, the Attorney General told the Supreme Court it's stupid and moot. It's totally moot for me, but not moot for someone else. And it's definitely not frivolous when it's discussing constitutional matters. I despise people that take that type of authority when speaking about our Constitution. As you know, Georgia was lost, of course it was going to get lost because everyone wants to land on waiting for Senator Joe Manchin to kind of flip, right? That's what they want. We have them putting the nail in the coffin, mocking Herschel Walker, where his aides, which were all disinfo, counterintel assets, this is what happens when you want to pick the popular people, you get penetrated. When you want to pick the professionals, they will screw you because there is always someone with a higher bank balance that will pay them. They're mercenaries. They're no different to the ISIS fighters, the Muhammad, you know, you name it. They're no different. They're mercenaries. Mercenaries. And that's what I feel most of our media pundits, wannabe news people are mercenaries. High is bitter. High is bitter. Now, while most of you want to talk COVID and go and look at remedies and start drooling on the couch for that, that ship has sailed. It's over. That has been introduced to the genetic code of many. There is now a clear distinction between vaccinated and non-vaccinated human beings, and that will be coming to fruition in 2023. Many people that I have that are listeners also took the vaccine. I remember my family did too. Therefore, trying to seek and find remedies and figure out how much they're poisoning you, you're wasting your time. may be interesting to you to find out how many things they're spraying, but I already told you it was aerosolized because Nancy Pelosi told you it was aerosolized when she said she was going to fumigate them out. But nobody pays attention to the details. We pay attention to what people tell us to pay attention to. 
The news are distracting you with a variety of things, but as you saw today at the Supreme Court of the United States, there were discussions about power of the states in conducting elections, and that had to do with the unconstitutional formation of these uh, redistricting questions, right? which tend to serve the majority party, whatever, whatever, and we know they're both the same party, so let's stop pretending. Many of you fall into these rabbit holes. The key things that we should be looking at is that we have really evil people doing really evil things to human beings and children. That's key and number one. And that we are not free. We are under the impression that we are free. And the only freedom we have is on paper while it's still there. And I've been reiterating this over and over again. The power outage in North Carolina has seemed to cause a cascade of events, which is going to be increasing the digital footprint on your utilities. That's what they're going to do. Now, the January 6th committee uh, today announced that um, they will be issuing criminal referrals to the Justice Department against key individuals that help with the U.S. Capitol attack. They actually said on the record that President Trump will be one of the criminal referrals. I am working as hard as possible to make sure this documentary goes out beforehand. But here's where the problem lies. The people that are telling us that they're our friends, the people that have been telling you that they are on your side, the people that are telling you that they're all about the truth will probably not aid in assisting President Trump. I told you they were going to raid him. I told you they were going to arrest him. It's going to happen. They came after his business. They're coming after everyone. And, and, and like he said, if they're doing it to him, they will do it to you. And I actually said the same thing to my haters. Well, you hate me. And you realize what they've done to me. If they've done it to me, they will also do it to you. And that's what's important. They wish to have civil unrest because it's necessary. Why not during Christmas time when they can feasibly shut things down and lock people in their homes? I mean, it is the holidays, so, hmm, so odd. Now, a lot is happening. In other news, we have Soros um, capping off his midterm spending to $50 million uh, in his super PAC contribution, right? Well, See, this is what I said. My first case in SCOTUS was the one for the elections, and we got that done. The next one is going to be Citizens United versus FEC. Once that's set, we get Citizens United FEC. I'm still mulling around to see how we're going to get this done. I'm still thinking about it, even though I'm not all together. I'm still thinking about it. Classified documents being found at Trump's. <laughs> uh, you know, I am... I'm tired of the, 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 the random, the random. 
But one thing I can tell you is, you know, Elon Musk is getting the heat of it too. He decided to like flip bedrooms. <laughs> he made bedrooms of, you know, company offices at Twitter. Uh, you know, you just redesigned them. And now they're like, hey, you know, this is a, can't have rooms, you know, um, can't have bedrooms. It's a violation of city building codes. This is how petty they are, city building codes. Nancy, is that how petty you are in your district? <laughs> Even though you guys have already made a deal to put Gavin as uh, your presidential lead? <laughs> really? Then we have Theranos. You know, um, Sonny Balwani was sentenced to 13 years, yet, you know, Kissinger... Mad Dog Mattis, right? Holmes, all of them are kind of just whatever, right? She got 11 years in prison for the fraud. He got 13, but the people that actually pulled the strings was General Mattis, was Kissinger, were the people that are on the board checking out this whole blood stuff. Wasn't really a fraud. They're just covering up exactly what was done, what actual research was being done. So having said that, let me introduce you to this guy. I think it's important that you guys get to know him. Um, Let me share his Twitter feed so you can see who I'm speaking about. Let me get this up. This is Yuval Noah Harari, which by the way, he's gay which is mind-boggling considering the attestations and positions he takes, so I don't understand that much. So this guy, okay, first of all, if you want to preserve democracy, vote for politicians who respect institutions that investigate and publish truth. Vote for a party that tells people that they have the right to elect whatever government they like, but they cannot elect whatever truth they like. See, That is a statement that I would say minus the preserved democracy. So the question you should ask yourself is why? Well, I'll tell you. His truth is completely different to a truth that one might be, you know, more available to see. I am going to play a clip um, where someone analyzes his discussion where he actually promotes satanic evil. But before I do that, um, well, actually, no, I think that's the most important one. I want you guys to listen to the analysis of these people discussing what he said. And then we'll go backwards to see exactly what he said. Here we go. This digital bill of rights. By whatever happened to for the people, by the people, of the people, I mean, that's totally out. But, but listen to this carefully and, and kind of catch what the intent is and how intrusive it is. Let's listen to this. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, We need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. What we have seen so far, it's corporations and governments collecting data about where we go, who we meet, what movies we watch. The next phase 
is the surveillance going under our skin. We now see mass surveillance systems established even in democratic countries, which previously rejected them. And we also see a change in the nature of surveillance. Previously, surveillance was mainly above the skin. Now it's going under the skin. Governments want to know not just where we go or who we meet. Above all, they want to know what is happening under our skin. What's our body temperature? What's our blood pressure? What, what is our medical condition? Now humans are developing even bigger powers than ever before. We are really acquiring divine powers of creation and destruction. We are really upgrading humans into gods. We are acquiring, for instance, the, the power to re-engineer life. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. I mean, all this story about Jesus rising from the dead and being the son of God, this is fake news. So hackable, people are hackable now. Tell us what that means. Tell us well, what the implications are. I, I think we need to explain who this Mr. Yuval Harari is. He's an Israeli. He's a homosexual. Um, I think, and he, he's the person that Klaus Schwab listens to more than anybody. He may be the most dangerous man on the planet. You've just heard him for a couple of minutes here. When he speaks, world leaders listen, including to the nonsense he just spoke there. You think uh, if you if you ever want to see what evil looks like, it's that dude. Okay, I mean, if you listen to this guy speak, man, this guy is full out evil. The things he's thinking about. But what he's really trying to do? They want to hack your brain so that they can tell you what to think and how to think. And when he that last little clip that said that Jesus rose from the dead was fake news. He has, he is a, such a God-hater. Yes, he is. believes that any faith in God, the God above the clouds, he calls them, that any faith is just fictitious and fake news. So he wants to be able to hack the brain to eliminate people believing like that. He believes that's a false narrative. And so they have their narrative. And so with this digital currency, with this ability to hack people and put things under your skin and perhaps in your brain, um, they want to be able to control the thoughts of people. This is why it's so dangerous. And Elon Musk has talked about it and a few other people about putting chips in your brain and things like that. That's where they're going, guys. Now, I hope, I hope we're raptured before that. Um, but for goodness sakes... That's pretty evil. Is basically they want to destroy belief. That's right. Belief in the one true God. Now that's when you know. I, I would say that guy's probably satanically, Absolutely. demonically possessed, man. To say things like that—that that is antichrist language. We blaspheme the God of heaven. Keep your eye on this man wherever you can hear him. Listen to him. Yeah. And 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 bad dude. Ponder what he's saying. It's it's very dark. It's very dark. Recently, in an interview, he was talking. He was talking about hacking us, 
And he said, you know, we're going to have these implants so that you don't believe fake news. And because all, and he went on, he says, all of us have this propensity, you know, to different things, to think about politics this way or ethics this way. But we're, we're going to make sure that when we, when we do this, we'll, we'll be able to keep people from these things, anything that's fake news. So that resurrection statement, that's why we included that in the video tip, clip, because he specifically says the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to keep people from believing the resurrection or anything about biblical morality. Evil, right? Because he says all these things. Well, I've sat down with him a few times, once in disguise, uh, as part of a delegation, and he supposedly knew the person that I was pretending to be. Once in disguise, meeting a person that was manufactured for him to believe I was. And that's where I had the most um, fruitful discussion with him. And then once I was not in disguise and ran into him, and I could have sworn he did a double take. Didn't speak to him at that time. I've eaten with this man. And I shared good conversation, which I'll be able to elaborate on. To do so, though, I want to showcase another man that I told you to keep your eye on, as he was part of the plan, because they are on the same page. And to do that, we have to watch a little bit of Andrew Yang, who's very good friends with him. And they see eye to eye on a lot of things. Isn't it interesting how evil sounds like common sense and how good sounds like a conspiracy theory. Almost like it was manufactured like that. I'm a senior writer with Fortune based in the California Bay Area. And I'm thrilled to be here with two very impressive and innovative thinkers today. Um, Yuval Noah Harari is historian and best-selling author and a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And Andrew Yang is the founder of the Forward Party. Um, I know I mentioned your titles. You two are a whole lot more than that. But I'd like to know how you present yourselves to the world. What makes you tick? And what is something that you're working on right now that you're excited about? And Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Hi, it's great to be here with you all. Uh, and Yuval, you've been an inspiration to a lot of what I've spent the last number of years making a case for. Uh, when you ask how I describe myself, I consider myself an entrepreneur and problem solver. Uh, the issue here in the States is that a lot of the biggest problems are not issues that the private markets are going to address. Uh, they're issues that you would need an activated and invigorated government and public uh, public space uh, to address, and that's not really happening in the US. So uh, I ran for president on a platform of universal basic income because uh, I believe that AI and automation are going to transform the labor markets of the US in a way that's going to push many, many people to the side. We're already seeing a version of that. Uh, and now uh, I've founded the Forward Party because the American duopoly is not designed to advance meaningful solutions. It's designed to polarize and inflame, and it's going to lead to uh, conflict and potential uh, strife. Well, not even potential strife. I mean, the strife is here. I was going to say potential civil war, um, but I <laughs> thought that might seem a little bit uh, sensationalist. Uh, maybe not sensationalist, sadly. Um, Yuval, over to you. Tell us about yourself. Um, so I'm a, I'm a historian, but I'm a historian that defines history as the study not of the past, but as the study of change, which covers also the present and the future. 
and I work on all kinds of things. Maybe the most uh, important things I'm working on right now is a children's book, a uh, history of the world for kids aged 10, 11, something like that, uh, which is probably the most uh, difficult or also fun project I've ever worked on. I... Well, I have a nine-year-old boy, so uh, you have a customer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I have... I have some kids too who will love to read it and hopefully their, your book doesn't throw them into an existential crisis, right? Because I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, very exciting. Um, you're both working on big things and again are, are very big thinkers. Um, the theme of Nexus Israel this year is sustainability. This is a, a big word. Uh, it can mean different things to different people. Hmm. And I want to hear from both of you. What does it mean to you? What are the issues within the umbrella of sustainability, whether it's climate, an environment or uh, population food systems and of course future of work um, and and implications to the workplace what are the issues within sustainability that you are most closely looking at and that your work intersects with and let's go to you Val first this time hmm. so I think that sustainability is basically about survival about the survival of humanity, the survival of human civilization, and also the survival of uh, the ecological system as we know it. It all now depends on us. We have the power to destroy our civilization. We have the power to destroy, not the world, because that's, that's impossible. There will always be something after us, but to destroy much of the, of the existing ecological system. And um, maybe the most difficult part of all that is the potential to um, destroy the very meaning of humanity. That the technologies that we are now developing, they, they threaten the physical survival of trees and of animals and of human beings, but they also potentially threaten the mental or psychological, or even philosophical survival of what we used to mean by, by humanity. And um, you can approach this, pro this, this, this issue for, for many directions. I mean, I'll say just, just one thing that I've been working on, on, on lately, that if we focus on the more physical threat to the ecological system, what strikes me as a historian is that the kind of political project needed in order to prevent ecological collapse is actually within reach of the current political system. Uh, the best estimates that I found say that in order to prevent catastrophic climate change and ecological collapse, we just need to invest 2% more of global GDP every year than what we are doing already. And you know, 2% of global GDP is a lot of money, but it's completely feasible politically. If it was something like 20% or 40%, I would say that it's a political impossibility. But at a price tag of 2%, politicians, are, this is their job. They are quite good at shifting 2% of resources from here to there. So uh, I hope they do their job. Uh, I'm sure Andrew has some thoughts about that. Andrew, can you <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, tell us? <laughs> Why aren't they doing their job? Um, but tell us first what sustainability means to you. What matters to you most when we talk about this topic? Well, it's about whether we're going to be passing a habitable environment to our kids uh, and grandkids. Uh, at this point, the changes are, are manifesting uh, around us uh, in 
sometimes tragic form. Uh, and it, it really does encapsulate some of our biggest challenges that relate to the labor market as well. So in, in the US, uh, you have uh, these two warring mindsets of abundance and scarcity. And if you go to an American and say, hey, we need to move towards sustainable energy sources, uh, and they're in a mindset of scarcity, they might hear that and say, oh, that's going to mean higher prices. It's going to mean fewer jobs for people like me. Uh, and they don't react positively to it necessarily. Meanwhile, as the environment is changing and you have more frequent storms uh, and flooding and, and the like, that also induces a mindset of scarcity. Unfortunately, it's actually a negative loop. It's not like when someone has some uh, some extreme weather, they think, oh, we should like move towards sustainable energy as quickly as possible. They actually are more likely to crouch and become defensive and, and shut down. Uh, and so the challenge for the U.S. is really uh, to try and have a policymaking organ that can overcome market incentives and market forces. And right now, the U.S. is struggling very much with that. Uh, there is a political market and political incentives that people are now held captive to. Uh, and that's keeping us from being able to solve the biggest problems, including how to try and transition to more sustainable forms of energy. There's a growth imperative that's tied into our capitalist system and our stock market system where you, you look and say, well, like the, the goal of these companies is to grow, grow, grow. Uh, and sometimes right now that growth is running at cross purposes to a more habitable planet. Hmm. Okay. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I just want to remind everybody, this is a conversation that's really about the nexus of AI and technology, public policy, sustainability, and the future of work. Um, clearly a lot of topics there, but all interrelated. I want to focus on people that count, not the jobs. There are many jobs which are not really worth saving. We need them if they are essential for uh, uh, human dignity and the ability of humans to, to sustain themselves. But if we can find alternative ways to do it, there is no point in, uh, in just keep, keeping the jobs. Now, with regard to universal basic income, you know, it's, it's a long discussion. For me, the key issue is what do you mean by universal? Most of the time, it's, it, it means national. It means the US government uh, taking, uh, imposing taxes on the big corporations that make trillions out of the technology and using it in order to help in many different ways the people who lose their jobs in driving trucks or in call centers. But the biggest problems, I think, from a global perspective, will not be in the United States. The United States is a very rich country. It's leading the new in technological revolution. It will benefit enormously from it, whether it goes in the direction of retraining the workforce or whether it goes in the direction of universal basic income or a combination of the two, it has the resources to do it. And it will have more and more resources because it's leading this revolution. The really big problems will be in Mexico will be in Guatemala, will be in Egypt, that um, their economies are even more vulnerable to the automation revolution, and they don't have the kind of resources, and, and they will not benefit from, the autom from uh, uh, all the rise of AI and machine learning. So what are they going to do? 
how are you going? Again, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking in terms of retraining people for the new economy or in terms of building a new kind of social contract and protecting the people and not the jobs. Either way, it's going to cost a lot of money. Where will the government of Guatemala or Egypt get the money to do this kind of thing? And uh, this was what, what really worries me. I, I completely uh, agree with Andrew that, that the U.S. is facing its own huge difficulties, but it also has the resources, if they are used correctly, to deal with it. <laughs> the big problems are going to be actually el elsewhere, which again, it's not, it's not a prophecy that the U.S. will do it. I mean, it could completely, even though it has the resources, it could completely mismanage the crisis. And um, yes, even civil war is not an impossibility. But at least it has kind of a, 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 a horizon of how to do it. I'm afraid that there are many countries which is, uh, if you don't think in kind of in terms of a global safety net, they just can't do it on their own. Um. Andrew, you also brought up some really interesting and, and worrying points about what happens when people's jobs, when people are displaced, um, their, their jobs are displaced, that is, um, and sort of a, um, a rise in extremism. Um, Yuval, I know you've, you've given this some thought as well. Mm -hmm. Where can we look to history uh, and, and see what does happen when we don't find meaning in work? Where do we turn to as humans? Um, Have I stumped you? <laughs> no, it, 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 it's a big question. I, I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> you need to write another book. <laughs> yes. Um, Hi, everyone. This is Kara Swish. Hello, Michael. It's very good to have you here. Good to be with you, Yuval. Good to see you again, even if remotely. Yeah, this is the way things are to, these days. Uh, maybe we'll just introduce ourselves for, for a brief moment uh, for the sake of the people who are watching us. So I'm Professor Yuval Noah. So I wanted to stop right there and say something, but obviously my fingers are working over time here. I want you to understand that um, Yuval, how I got to know Yuval and why he first met me was through his um, advisor, uh, Stephen Gutt. When he was in Oxford doing his DPhil, uh, he, was, uh, he was under the purview of a guy named Gunn. Gunn would actually meet with me, um, provided to him by the private agency that I work with as an expert in history between zero and 1000 AD ah. novice, right? But that's the credentials they gave me. And I was helping him work around the times of Mercia and um, English history more than anything. Uh, even though his focus is medieval, the missing gap is the historical um, events that happened in Europe between zero and 1000 AD, pretty much. Specifically in the period of time of uh, 617 um, to 790 um, AD. 
So Gunn was actually like his thesis advisor, I would say. He uh, did his work under him. Uh, and this is how he met me in, in disguise the first time discussing historical context. Now, the conversation that ensued um, more so in a casual, I guess, setting would be history has been edited, of course. The excuse, obviously, using Krakatawa and many other things. But the one way that you gain control is by controlling the information people have. Let's take it on a more smaller scale. Let's take a family unit. Gosh, this is, this is really hard for me to visit. Um, as I'm working through these things myself to understand how I was a victim of controlled information myself, uh, uh, being an alleged expert, it, it's really hard to, to, you know, to have been on the receiving end unknowingly. Now, one thing that, you know, you can imagine, let's, um, ooh, you know which one? Well, I don't remember the name of the movie right now. It escapes me. But let's pretend that we have Adam, Eve, John, and Sally. Adam and Eve are the wife and husband, right? And John and Sally are the kids. If Adam wants complete control over Eve, he will disallow her to leave the home or allow her to go to a specific environment uh, for very specific things. In order to deter her venturing outside of the security of the home, he will provide um, incentives for her to stay in, such as a pack of wolves, maybe bears, maybe murderers, crackheads, you know, whatever outside, so don't go. In order for her to be content with maintaining her schedule of raising John and Sally the way he has dictated to her, he will ensure that there will be um, specific lessons that are going to be taught. There will be specific information that will be sought. The television set will only have access to channels that the television set is allowed to have with very specific information. The books and or internet access that that household has is highly controlled. So you will only see what there is. It's almost like those. there was this um, film that I watched where people were in bunkers because there was a nuclear fallout supposedly. And they all lived in these safe, sustain, self-sustainable things that, you know, where they would urinate and defecate, it would be recycled into food, and they were linked up to the grid because there was a fallout. And then something happens, and one of the, 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 the pods that they were in breaks, and, and somebody gets out, and they see that there's an ocean, and it's not radioactive, and there's just robots everywhere, and they just exist in these pods. And that there was never a fallout. It's almost the same thing. Right now, you are in a controlled environment. Not to the extent that they would like, though, because you are many and they are few. In order to be able to hack you, there's two ways. One is the voluntary way. And the other one is the mandatory way. I would say the more physical way. The, the voluntary one 
is by providing you incentives by complying with programs. So that way they can um, modify algorithms uh, for you to be able to have the right content directed to you. Your Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, your TikTok feed, your YouTube feed will all feed back information they want you to see. They believe will keep you just as you are. It's an abusive relationship, almost like conservatorship. But one should ask themselves one key thing. They know that you are many and that they are few. So why would they go to this extent? So here's where we get into the conversation we had. Considering that the, um, speaking from a historical perspective, I was providing information in regards to Cinewolf, C-Y-N-E-W-U-L-F. The participant in the empire of Mercia, of what is now known as the United Kingdom, and there was also um, um, uh, shoot, not Wexner. It could be Wexner, West or Sussex. Darn it, I'm forgetting. I have to look at my notes. It's been a while. Um, but. In that discussion, the fact that that history was eradicated from the United Kingdom's historical context of how they were formed and how Mercia was eradicated and how Sussex came to be um, is extremely muddied because there was a crossover between Norsk Norsk influence, um, uh, Islamic influence as well, just so you know, and Roman influence. And so, as a discussion ensued in regards to cutting that out of their history, it was actually Yuval who said, well, that's the best way to control what people of the future will do. As long as you can edit history correctly, it is done. So, then the conversation ensued from the other parties that were present, how the Catholic Church had edited and removed books uh, from uh, what they call scriptures of Christianity. And they all laughed at it and said, well, you know, we, this is why uh, the Jewish people are now focused on the Torah and trying, uh, focused on the, the Talmud and focused on doing away with the Torah. Considering himself a Jew, and I asked him, you are Jewish, right? And he said, I'm as Jewish as they come. And I said, well, which kind of Jew? Because if you're gay, it's anti, you know, that's not what Jewish people do. So are you a Talmudic Jew or are you just a regular Jew? He kind of got taken back with that. And I said, you can't use a broad brush when you're here creating factions of society according to their religious beliefs uh, based on history. And I also challenged him on um, matters in respects to the Quran and how accurate it was historically and how less editing that underwent as opposed to uh, the uh, Christian scriptures. Now, regardless if they've been edited or not, whichever um, historic scriptures and holy scriptures you read, 
the source is still the same, and that is God. And that is something that they cannot take on because he clearly said he will be back. And time is running out, hence why time is so skewed. Time is running out. The grace period is gone. And so time has been skewed purposely for that reason. Because nothing can stop what's coming. This conversation between Michael Sandel and Yuval is quite fascinating. More so, I would say, because, you know, they talk, well, you know, I'm trying to think um, if we should get into the more, see, they're about the fact of reducing people and pushing towards what they consider the common good. Allow me to begin this conversation for you so you can see where we're going with this. Keep in mind, Yuval was actually quite impressed because everything that he would come back with a solution, I would pander to his more scientific side and say, well, here you are playing God. Here you are saying that if you eliminate the thing of belief, that then you can manage the genetic code of people and therefore treat them like software. Yet you are not the architect. You are simply building an API for humans. And this is the idea that all of you want. You want to take the best of history in regards to control and power and eliminate the one common factor that limits you to have ultimate power, and that's belief. Therefore, creating a God on earth like they did with the Pope failed. Therefore, what you need to do is eliminate, right? An actual God. That, that is your goal. And he said, precisely. Well, how did that work out for people, though? See, at that time, I didn't even see evidence of it, but I knew that there would be evidence of it, that this code, the crosstalk between our codons is so incredible. Craig Rentner, who eliminated... From the simplest genetic code, viral coding, anything that makes that bacteria virulent, he eliminated it, and yet it's still manifested in a natural environment. And their argument is, is that they, if they can manufacture enough, it'll be gone. They believe that they have located where the genetic information is. <clears throat> but they gave up, actually, on that and decided that if they can skew the way DNA is and the way it interacts, if they can interrupt the process, while there will be mortality to come, right, which means many will die off, those that will remain will be the ones that are most genetically sound to continue to be populated with in order to be able to have insertable features, meaning to have a way to insert the code you want. Now, while COVID vaccines 
were the main primers for such activities, which were more to induce lethality and dependence on the state more than anything. They also introduce new genetic code into your system, which is through your filtration system, in order to disable your ability to get rid of toxins, hence why it goes through the liver, and this is why we have an increase in pancreatic cancers and soft tissue cancers now, but anyway. So in general, these people who are playing God decided, okay, we can't delete the God gene, but what we can do is this insanely perfect architecture that we have that we don't understand, we're going to manipulate it so that way whatever humans are left with that manipulation, it'll give us the scaffolding to be able to insert the things we want because they can't eliminate genes. Because they'll crosstalk anyway and remanifest. Every single gene you have is encoded in every single piece of DNA you have in every single cell, in every heart cell, skin cell, kidney cell, you know, you name it cell, all of that DNA is there. So even if you cleave it, it will manifest with crosstalk because the majority of your DNA is unknown to you by traditional brick and mortar. So listen to this um, soft and actually want to be soft conversation between um, Sandal and, and you know he's he talks politics. He's a political philosopher at Harvard. I find him to be very smart, and I also find him to be very apologetic when he's not on camera for some reason. He challenges his own words when he's in in person and speaking in private. Take a listen. Maybe you'll get the hint why. This is the way things are these days. Uh, Maybe we'll just introduce ourselves for for a brief moment uh, for the sake of the people who are watching us. So I'm Professor Yuval Noah Harari. I teach history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And I'm the author of uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus and a new graphic novel, uh, Sapiens, The Birth of Humankind. And I'm Michael Sandel. I teach political philosophy at Harvard. And I've just written a book called The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. And I should add that Yuval and I began our conversation, didn't we, on a trip in, to Chile and Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, it was like four or five years ago. Five years right. ago, I think. Yeah. In, in prehistory, as, as things evolved since then. So I actually have a number of questions about your, your new book, The Tyranny of Merit, but maybe it's best if you first present the, the main thesis of the book uh, so everybody would be on, on the same page. Sure. I began thinking about the book in 2016 with the spread of authoritarian populism, the election of Trump in the U.S., Brexit in Britain, and the rise of authoritarian hyper-nationalist populist parties and movements in many parts of the world. And I think, so I wanted to try to make sense of it. And I think a lot of it has to do 
with a sense of anger and resentment, even a sense of humiliation that a great many working people feel, and that these figures, including Trump, have been able to tap into. I think at the heart of it is the fact that the divide between winners and losers has been deepening in recent decades, poisoning our politics and driving us apart. This has partly to do with the widening inequalities that we've seen during four decades of globalization, but it's not only economic inequality. I think it has to do also with changing attitudes toward success, toward winning and losing that accompanied the rising inequality. Those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and by implication, that those who fall short, those who are struggling, have no one to blame but themselves. Now, this way of thinking about success reflects a certain meritocratic ideal. The idea is, and it seems inspiring on the face of it, if chances are equal or could be made equal, the winners would deserve their success and the benefits that flow from it. And so while this is inspiring in, in one way, it leads to the rhetoric of rising, the promise you can make it if you try. It's invidious in another. Meritocracy has a dark side because it generates hubris among the winners and humiliation among those who are left behind. One of the most potent sources, I think, of the populist backlash against elites is the galling sense among many working people that elites look down on them. This, I think, is is one of the important factors that, that has roiled our politics and led to the populist backlash, Yuval. I've also been trying for the last few years to understand what's happening in the world. Um, as a historian, I tend maybe to be a bit more skeptical about our ability to identify causal connections uh, in history. Um, I belong to the type of historians who think that we are much better at describing what happens than at understanding why it happens. I think that many of the big events of history, we still don't have a good explanation for them. Why did Christianity rise to become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire and then spread from there? I've never read a convincing argument why it was Christianity and not any of the other many religions that were on offer in the supermarket of ideas of the Roman Empire. Similarly, I don't think I understand or anybody really understands why the scientific revolution took place in Europe and not in the Middle East or China. I've read many, many explanations. Again, I think we can describe what happened with a high degree of accuracy, but we don't know why it happened. And my gut feeling about 2016 and the populist uprising is, is, is really the same. 
that we still don't understand. Um, I know that a lot of people are pointing a finger at globalization and meritocracy and inequality in general. And it may be true in, in some cases, like in the US. I'm not an expert on US society or US politics, so I don't know. But the thing about the populist wave of the last few years is that it's a global phenomenon. It's not just Brexit, it's not just Trump. You see the rise of authoritarian populists all over the world, in Brazil, in Hungary, in Poland, in Turkey, in my home country of Israel, in the Philippines, in India, and under very diverse conditions. Some countries like the US, you can make a very convincing argument that at least the working classes have lost a lot from globalization, so they are against it. But the working classes in Turkey, in India, in Brazil, arguably benefited enormously from globalization. So what explains what's happening there? And it's, it's the same with meritocracy. And I'm still struggling to find a global explanation for this phenomenon. The other thing I, I have trouble with is, okay, maybe populism is a reaction to elite hubris and the fact that you have these winners who take all and everybody else are left behind and even blamed or ridiculed for their failure. But why then is the uh, anger results in anti-democratic forces rising? How come we don't see the rise of leaders and parties who are committed to the core values and institutions of democracy and express these views? Why must it go in the anti-democratic direction? And related to that, why are the main victims of populism not the rich elites who are supposedly to blame for all that, the main victims are minorities and immigrants and LGBTs and, and, and so forth. You know, you look at the Trump administration, it doesn't seem that it's kind of directing its uh, uh, force against the rich and powerful or even the educated. They are not the main victims. So... I, I'm struggling with, 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 with this, and I would be very interested to hear what, what you have to think, what, what you think about it. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Yuval. I do think there are some common threads that connect the, the populist movements and the populist backlash um, in countries around the world. One thread is the failure of mainstream political parties, and especially of center-left political parties, to deal with the rising inequality brought about by the globalization of the last four decades. And it, one could almost say that the success of right-wing populism is a symptom of the failure of progressive or social democratic politics. And in almost every country where we see populism flourish, authoritarian populism, because it's important to emphasize that right-wing populism is not the only possible version of it. 
though that's what we're seeing predominantly today. But that in itself is important because it gives a clue to the common thread, which has to do with the fact that center-left social democratic parties have failed. And what they've failed at is contain is there at, at performing their historic mission. Their historic mission has been to rein in the excesses of capitalism and to hold it to democratic account. That is the traditional mission and purpose of center-left or social democratic parties, to, to provide a, a counterweight to the concentrated power and to the inequality that results from unfettered capitalism and to seek a more just society. And during the past four decades, center-left parties have failed to do this. And I think one of the reasons they failed to do it is that they did not, they accepted uncritically the premise of the Reagan-Thatcher celebration of markets. That premise was that a market faith, that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for defining and achieving the public good. Now in the 1990s, when they faded from the political scene and center-left parties replaced them, Bill Clinton in the United States, Tony Blair in Britain, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, they didn't challenge this fundamental premise. They moderated its harsh edges. They softened it. They shored up the safety net to some degree, but they never challenged it. They embraced the project of neoliberal globalization. They embraced as a bipartisan project, the deregulation of the financial industry. And when it came to contending in the 2000s, 90s and 2000s, with the deepening inequality and the wage stagnation and the outsourcing of jobs, they offered the following promise. They said, if you wanna compete and win in the global economy, Go to university, get a degree. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. So this, Yuval, is how the meritocratic idea was offered together with the promise of individual upward mobility if you get a college degree. This was offered by the center-left parties as the answer to the inequality of globalization but it was far too narrow a response to inequality, partly because individual mobility, social mobility is not easy and it had stalled, but also because implicit in the offer was an insult that they missed. They were tone deaf to the insult, implicit to the offer, go get a university degree, then you too can rise. The insult was, if you didn't go to college, and if you're struggling in the new economy, your failure is your fault. This, I think, is what contributed to the anger, the resentment, the sense of grievance felt by a great many working people. We can easily forget that in most countries, most people don't have a, a university degree. 
About two-thirds do not in the United States and in most European countries. So it's folly to create an economy that makes dignified work and a decent life dependent on the idea of a university degree that most people don't have. So this, I think, is a common thread. And we see in most every country where authoritarian populism has come to power or is flourishing, we see that the greatest casualties have been center-left or social democratic parties, and it's they who have failed. And I think the only way really to, to heal this depolarization and to rein in this authoritarian populist tendency is to reconceive the mission and purpose of progressive or social democratic politics. What do you think about that? Well, do you find that do you find that persuasive or or not? So did you guys find that persuasive? His assessment is very accurate. Millennials hate the world because they were promised a degree it would get them a job. Everybody and their mother now has a degree and they can't get a job. I have cousins and family members and extended family members that have degrees in civil engineering, in law, and still can't get jobs. This was a purposeful failure. They just assumed that with outsourcing the menial jobs and hoping that everyone was an intellectual within the U.S. would brighten, you know, the whole morality of the people. But like he said, and that is a very good observation, it was being implied that, hey, if you don't get a degree, you're a failure. Because even, you know, when you apply for a job, they want, you know, a degree in what? They really don't care. They just want to say, did you go through the whole program, Right where you don't need to go through a degree program to be a, fan, a fantastic welder or a landscaper or a plumber or an electrician, right? Or a builder, you know, the people that actually keep things on, right? That, that make sure things work, right? They don't usually get a degree. So we have, what, what I want you guys to see is how and who Yuval is. And the conversation he has. While he's evil, he makes sense. Transhumanism is how you eliminate free will. And he is not the only one speaking about transhumanism. And it's not all it's cracked up to be. The United States of America had implemented projects, secret projects, on actual American citizens. Transhumanism is already here. But unfortunately, when you mess with things you don't know, things you don't expect happen. And then that crushes your reality and you don't know how to operate from it. But I want you to hear his perspective on transhumanism. One of the last generations. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. Now, why is data so important? It's important because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack 
human beings and other organisms. Now, what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. All of life for four billion years, dinosaurs, amoebas, tomatoes, humans, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and to the laws of organic biochemistry. But this is now about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. And at the same time, science may enable life, after being confined to, for four billion years to the limited realm of organic compounds, science may ena enable life to break out into the inorganic realm. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Free will, that's over. That's over. Over. Today, we have the technology to hack human beings on a massive scale. Yeah, I mean, everything is being digitalized. Everything is being monitored. In this time of crisis, you have to follow science. It's often said that you should never allow a good crisis to go to waste because a crisis is an opportunity to also do re good reforms that in normal times people will never agree to. But in a crisis, you see we have no chance. So, 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 so let's do it. Vaccine won't help us go the to the test, of course. The vaccine will help <laughs> us, of course. It will make things you know, more manageable. Surveillance, people could look back in 100 years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance took over, especially surveillance under the skin, which I think is maybe the most important development of the 21st century, is this ability to hack human beings, to go under the skin, collect biometric data, analyze it, and understand people better than they understand themselves. This I believe, is maybe the most important event of the 21st century. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. Natural selection is replaced by intelligent design. The era of inorganic life is now beginning. In the coming decades, AI and biotechnology will give us godlike abilities to re-engineer life, and even to create completely new life forms. We are about to enter a new era of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. Our intelligent design. 
running up that hill. That's what we do. Like good little obedient people, we run up hills. And then when we conquer a hill, we just see that there's many more. So before we get into his um, weird discussions and how he's writing children's books now, I wanted to talk about or actually pose a question rather than discuss more. But I listen to a lot of people speak. I read as many comments as I can. And a a common theme that I see is that many people who um, subscribe to the Christian-based faiths are convinced that they're in Revelations, that the book of Revelations is what they're going through. But they have to remember that the books of the Bible, there are 66 of them, right? Or more, but whatever, right? The book of Revelation was the last book that was apparently written. And it was dated about 100 years post um, Jesus' coming and going, right? From his birth, I guess. It says that John received the vision at the end of uh, Domitian's reign when he wrote it. But this is just a question. Revelation seems to overlap with Exodus a lot. And considering it's cyclical, considering that there are more floods that we don't speak of, we only speak about the flood of Noah. We don't speak about other floods. It would be curious to kind of sit back and think that every time such has happened throughout so many religions and cultures and times. So there have been four significant floods. People only speak of one. There have been a repetition of Exodus. Now, there could have been an Exodus with uh, another empire that you have no idea of in the previous flood. There's always a peak and then there's a trough. It seems that the peak began in the late 1800s when suddenly we went from having windows and candlelight to electricity and cars to within 100 years being able to speak to someone that's thousands of miles away from you and have coffee with them instantaneously. Instantaneously communicate with someone that's supposedly outside of this earth. It happened almost instantly within the past 100 years. Instantly. Yet for some reason, the communications have expanded, but the hindrance of the actual physical travel and changes haven't. Ergo, the comment that I make how, you know, our um, airplanes are just flying buses that haven't changed since the 50s, or how vehicles are evolving at a very slow rate, right? And it seems like there's rules into what you are allowed to do and what you aren't. It almost seems like there are unwritten rules that very few people have access to into what is able to be done and what isn't. So in thinking that, in thinking that, right, If we go to Exodus and we think of Exodus, we hear about how, um, you know, 
there was a population arising and the king of Egypt at the time uh, had enslaved them, a, a new population. And, you know, they would be killing infant boys and wanted to only have girls and would commit genocide, right? It's almost as if it seemed like a continuation of Genesis. And then supposedly this one person, Moses, was born. And, and, and because the midwife didn't kill the baby or whatever, like how did they know? Did they wait till they come out of the womb and then kill them? Or did they just guess in the belly that it was a male and not a female? Did they go by, you know, where it would sit? You know, because usually male embryos sit at the apex of the uterus as opposed um, to um, female uh, babies. Uh, so then, you know, he gets put on a basket and he escapes and because his kind was not moderated, he arose to be this leader. Remember, Moses and all these people back then lived a very longer period of time. If you read the books, hundreds of years, it's almost as if every time the cycle happens, it's shorter. It's almost as if. It's all happening at once. And I say this because of what he says. He says this. Take a listen. Homo sapiens is the only animal that can talk about things that don't really exist. Churches are rooted in common religious myth about God and heaven. States are rooted in common national myths. Business corporations are rooted in common economic myths about money, stocks, and the corporations themselves. Judicial systems are also rooted in myth, in common legal myth about justice and human rights. Yet, in truth, there are no God in the universe, no nations, no corporations, no money, and no human rights and no justice outside the common imagination of us human beings. Yuval Harari thinks big for a living. Not so long ago, he was an obscure history professor, but his 2014 book, Sapiens, changed all that. He explored the past, cramming 150,000 years of human history into 400 pages. Authority will shift. Transforming himself into a literary phenomenon. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome once again Yuval Noah Harari. Name dropped by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates and Barack Obama. The other book that I really enjoyed, a book by an Israeli author, Yuval Harari. His follow-up book, Homo Deus tackled the future, elevating Harari to a sort of digital visionary. <laughs> now he's back with his take on the present day. His have you read his book? If you have any audible credits, I suggest you listen to it. Now, I do warn you that your consciousness will be tickled with. <clears throat> I've always said that logic is the devil's advocate because it works within the constraints of this realm. I want you to hear the politics of consciousness. We're going to watch this together. It's an actual lecture that he's done. 
I say this because this is exactly what you are going through right now. Everything that Scientific is happening studies to you, often treat consciousness as in everything that is happening to you online. You are constantly being insulted by somebody else's thoughts. When he says there's no free will, there is free will. But the problem is people don't exercise it. Every time you make a decision, you make a decision based on consequences. If I don't take this vaccine, I will not have a job. If I don't lock my door, someone will come in. If I, uh, you know, don't do this, this will happen. We always think in realm of consequence. Hence, there really isn't, in effect, if we take it this way, no free will at face value, right? At all. People always rationalize their choices. I choose to eat, uh, you know, pasta rather than rice because, uh, I don't know, whatever. It's too hard for me to get today, right? The choices we make are based on the now and the right now, right, 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 right now. And they're influenced by others. They're influenced by our immediate family, our society, our work environment, our access to technology, our access to money, our access to healthcare, our access to legal remedies. All of them formulate our choices. And this is why we have stopped listening to our gut. We have started falling into rabbit holes. We all obviously understand at 100% that crimes against people are crimes. Using people as slaves are crimes. Using people as food are crimes. Using people as objects are crimes. Using children as, as food is crime. Using children as slaves is a crime. A crime, crime, crime. We know this. So why are we dwelling on something we know? It's almost as if when we dwell on those things that we cannot fix instantaneously, we are wasting our time. We need to be focusing on things we can fix to ensure we have power over those things. See, this is the glory of, you know, a psychological operation. They get you passionate about specific things. And therefore, you focus on those things. Therefore, it's not free will. Do you freely delve into finding out about clots in the blood? I told you about that in 2020. Why are you listening to it now? Are you really listening about graphene oxide? Told you that in 2018, 2018, 2020 introduced you to that. Also told you that COVID was simply to put you on surveillance, but now we're all talking about it. Talking about child trafficking, human trafficking, using people as sustenance. Oh, Theranos, yeah, testing for blood, no. It's actually to help break the code and the curse that they have with time being so limited. Remember, in previous historical text, people lived 800 years, 600 years, 300 years. Suddenly, it's only 100, and that's if you get to 100. It's lessening. The more we evolve as a society, for some reason, time is running out. And like I've always said, and I've always confessed to my priest, the only thing I 
am concerned about is time. I feel like I don't have enough of it. And I remember telling that to Father Stacy, I don't make time for me. I feel like I don't have enough time to do things. Yet when I look at my life in retrospect, this, this venture, it seems almost instantaneous. And I'm sure many of you do feel that way too. But if you actually ponder on it, you realize just how long it is. And then you're caught in the middle thinking, well, which one is it? Was it a long time ago or was it really a short time ago? And that goes into, you know, the stuff Gavin delves into, which is the Sensex, which is the older you get, you can actually watch grass grow. Whereas the younger you are, it seems like it's not growing. So again, look at the Look at what is happening right now. You are being congested with so much information and not focusing on the things you can do. I want to stop child and human trafficking. How are you going to do that when you don't even have people that represent you in office? Just complain about it. Maybe put a meme. Hmm? Or maybe do an expose. That could wake up the masses that haven't woken up. But what else can you do? That's right. I want to stop this healthcare tyranny. Well, how do you stop that? You got to get rid of insurance, but insurance is actually a structure and the hospitals are structured like this and the government's structured like this. And then they take your pension. So that means you got to do a whole reset of everything. You can't just say, well, you know what? Forget insurance. Doctors, when they contribute, they will do this. But how are you going to do that when you have pharmaceutical companies and you have laws that are already established talking about patents and how long and how they can do them uh, at a cheaper price and who's not going to sue who? How do you unravel this Gordian knot? Because this is exactly what society is doing right now. Every single American right now is trying to fix this, you know, and undo this Gordian knot. You're trying to undo it. Same conversation I had in November 2020. Get rid of every single person that was elected post 2016. 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. Get rid of them all. It'll cause chaos, but we'll fix it all. We'll gut it all. We'll come to a standstill, but we will survive as long as the right things are in place. That would be chaos. Controlled chaos. Because what we're about to descend to is uncontrollable chaos. And that's because every single person out there is under the impression that they have free will. And you do have free will. Let me, let me rectify that statement. You have free will. How's this? You don't exercise free will. And so while we're trying to pull at this Gordian knot, we're not paying attention to the things that we could be doing to actually rectify it. Ah. Uh, the lawsuits, obviously, like I said, get your damn city charters. It is the fastest thing you can fix. When I'm better, I know I'm taking heat in Cleveland, and that's going to that's gonna go nuts. People are banking on attempts of other people and praying for them to happen. You have to be focused, and you have to have precision in what you fix. This is the problem that we have. Many people will just simply do things for attention or to hope to remedy something when it's not laser focused, when it's not laser focused. You got to fix the things that are foundation. Think of Legos, right? So when you want to make like a castle for Legos, you have to have those green squares at the bottom to stick all the Legos on, right? 
So if all the bottoms of the Legos that are holding up this castle that you have are messed up and they're corrupt, what do you do? Well, maybe you need to put a better foundation so you rip out one of those bottom green tiles. But when you rip out that bottom green tile, it's going to tear part of the castle down. Exactly. And then you'll start building the new castle, which will look shiny and better than the next tile over. And again, and again, and again. So we are running up hills. Endless. Begging to swap places. Hence the Cape Bush. We're begging. But we're not paying attention to the politics of your consciousness, and that's your thought. And no matter how evil what he says sounds, it's merited in truth. Please take a listen. Neutral observer of the world. In fact, consciousness is the only thing in the universe that involves suffering, which is the very opposite of neutral observation. While observation tries to capture the present reality as objectively as possible, at the core of any experience of suffering is a rejection of present reality. We might well define consciousness as the capacity to suffer. This approach also highlights the crucial political and ethical implications of the science of consciousness. Since consciousness is linked to suffering, Questions like what is consciousness and who has consciousness have a deep impact on ethics, politics, and the law, as is apparent in debates about abortion, animal rights, and the legal status of AI. The study of consciousness is not just a scientific enterprise. It is also an ethical and political enterprise. Questions like what is consciousness and who has consciousness have a deep impact on ethics and politics, on law, and on the moral choices we make every day. Therefore, as scholars of consciousness, we should be aware of the political consequences or potential consequences of what we are researching and of what we are publishing. We have a heavy responsibility. In particular, we should remember that flawed scientific theories can have dangerous political fallout. Just think about the impact of erroneous theories regarding race and gender. When a century ago, scientists argued that Europeans constitute a superior race or that homosexuality is a sickness, these bogus theories did not remain confined to laboratories and seminar rooms. They had a terrible destructive impact on the lives of billions of people outside the academic ivory tower. Adopting a political perspective is not just a matter of responsibility. It can also advance scientific work. This may sound counterintuitive because mixing politics with science is usually bad for science. But consciousness is a special case. A political outlook might actually help us make sense of the various scientific theories of consciousness. At present, there are several competing scientific theories of consciousness. Sometimes it is difficult to understand what they really mean and how they differ from one another. Examining their potential political consequences can clarify the differences between 
these various theories. As an essential first step, let's start with the definition of consciousness. What is consciousness? This is, of course, a controversial and confusing question. Perhaps the most confusing question in the whole of science. Some argue that it's absolutely impossible to define consciousness. Others offer a bewildering list of different definitions. But, from a political and ethical perspective, the definition of consciousness is extremely simple and extremely concrete. From a political and ethical perspective, consciousness is characterized by the potential to suffer. Consciousness. So, consciousness. See, this is the conversation I had with him which I believe uh, was one of the most enlightening ones. And I thought to myself, wow. As you see him now, what he spews is evil and demonic. And you must distance yourself from listening to anything. But I'm going to tell you this. This man will be the first one to actually praise God. If allowed, he will be one of the first saved people. Now, I will upset many when I say this, but there have been a lot of churches and institutions that have morphed religion, all religions, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Taoism, and Christianity to instill obedience, yet giving the most conflicting course of action of, hey, I believe that you should just release it all to God and do nothing, but you must be obedient too. Obedient to what is the question? obedient to his ways, which is what? Do not kill, do not envy, you know, the usual Ten Commandments. So again, while what you hear is intriguing and has an undertone of very nefarious directions, which is why he is so loved by those who know so much better than us, right? That the elites as that professor from Harvard clearly said, show disdain for those that are not elites because they have not broken the mold because they were given the false promise that they can move above the clouds. <laughs> and yet everybody else stays under in the fog. I want you to pay attention to what he says about consciousness. And let's discuss. So let's start that again. But... From a political and ethical perspective, the definition of consciousness is extremely simple and extremely concrete. From a political and ethical perspective, consciousness is characterized by the potential to suffer. Consciousness is the capacity to suffer. Conscious entities like you and me can suffer, which is why we are ethical and political subjects. What happens to conscious entities 
is a matter of ethics and politics. Stones, tables, and cars don't have consciousness. They cannot suffer and are therefore not ethical or political subjects. They are mere objects. Stealing my car is a crime not because it makes the car suffer, but because it makes me suffer. The link between consciousness and suffering, and between consciousness and politics, manifests itself in numerous political debates in the modern world. Modern societies assume that political authority ultimately rests on having consciousness and being able to suffer. To be entitled to a voice in politics, you need the ability to feel pain and fear, as well as pleasure and joy. Describing your experiences of pain and fear is often a necessary preload for making your voice heard on questions ranging from race and gender to ecology and taxation. I feel, therefore I am entitled to speak. This was not always the case. In many pre-modern societies, political authority had little to do with feelings. Authority did not come from our inner feelings, it came from outside. Authority came from either the gods or the laws of nature. Rulers, for example, were allegedly chosen by the gods. Things were forbidden because the gods said so or because the laws of nature supposedly said so. The Ten Commandments, for example, forbade people to murder. Why? Because God said so. One of the biggest revolutions of the modern era was to shift the source of authority away from the alleged laws of the gods and of nature to the feelings of human beings. Modern-day rulers are not chosen by God, they are elected by people according to their feelings. And note that in democratic elections, people are asked not what is the truth, but rather what do you feel. That's why all people, are given an equal vote. Some people may be more intelligent than others, and certain people may understand physics and biology better than others. But all humans have a similar capacity to feel, and that is why they are entitled to the same voting rights. The pains and joys of an illiterate person are as important as the pains and joys of a Nobel Prize winner. As for forbidding things like murder or rape, the reason is not that God said so or some ancient book said so. We forbid these things because they make people suffer. To understand this shift in authority from external laws to internal feelings, we can look at cases of so-called victimless crimes. Crimes that do not cause anyone to suffer. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam famously banned homosexuality. Why? Because God said so. Because scriptures said so. Or because, allegedly, it was a crime against the laws of nature. For thousands of years, for one man to fall in love with another man was one of the worst crimes imaginable, sometimes punished by death. In the modern world, people began questioning this taboo. They asked, who suffers? If two men love each other, how does this harm anyone? And if nobody suffers, why should it be considered a crime? Ethics and politics are no longer about divine commandments or about alleged laws of nature. They are about feelings. 
Even religious zealots who oppose homosexuality have shifted their arguments accordingly, at least when they want to influence public opinion. To take an example from my home country of Israel, every year the Israeli LGBT community holds a gay pride parade in Jerusalem. Since LGBT people are often excluded from public spaces, threatened by humiliation and even violence, the parade is meant to demonstrate that they are equal and valued members of society who should feel safe and honored in public. Yet, the Jerusalem parade seldom goes unchallenged. Fundamentalist Jews, Muslims, and Christians who quarrel with each other throughout the year find a common cause on this one day and fume in accord against the LGBT parade. What's really interesting, however, is the arguments they use. The religious zealots do not say these sinners shouldn't hold a gay parade because God forbids homosexuality. No, the zealots explain to every available microphone and television camera that seeing a gay pride parade passing through the holy city of Jerusalem hurts our feelings. Just as LGBT people want us to respect their feelings, they should respect our feelings. So in this case, to determine whether it's okay to hold a gay parade in Jerusalem, we need to weigh one feeling against another feeling. Some people will feel humiliated and even endangered if we ban the parade. Other people will feel hurt if we allow the parade. Which feelings count for more? This is not the place to answer this question, but the key takeaway for our purpose is that in the modern world, many ethical and political conflicts pit one feeling against another feeling. Consider another scenario, featuring the statue of a dead leader that is placed in a prominent public square. Some people demand to remove the statue because they see it as an offensive racist symbol. Other people object, claiming that, for them, it signifies pride in their own group identity. Assuming that both sides are sincere, the argument again boils down to the question, whose feelings count for more? If a statue makes some people feel threatened or ignored, while making other people feel proud and valued, how do we weigh these feelings against each other? Such conflicts raise the more general question of how we measure feelings and how we measure suffering. Much of This was the exact conversation I had. Feelings and suffering. So the question posed was, well, we all share suffering. And why do we suffer? Well, we all are victim of saying the same thing, which is, I feel pain, therefore I know I am alive. Death is when you don't feel pain, when you don't know what happens. But I, as someone who I believe I was dead at some point, I'm going to tell you how it felt. And for those of you that have ever had a, an MRI or a CT with contrast dye, you'll understand the feeling. Imagine this warm feeling inside you where, you know, you almost feel like you're going to pee yourself, but you're all warm inside. Kind of like the way the, the, the dye does when they give it to you. It just 
gives you like this feeling everywhere instantly. That's how no pain feels. That's how it feels when you're in pain and they give you that Dilaudid at the emergency room or you get that morphine. You just, it just goes away, right? But in a warmer effect. So suffrage has been linked to life. Uh, even when you're sleeping and you're in a bad dream, what do you do to wake up? You pinch yourself. You cause yourself pain to wake up. Pain means that you're awake, that you're alive. Suffrage. What do scriptures tell us about suffrage? There's a lot, you know, where, you know, even had to suffer to get back into his gates, meaning he had to live as a mortal to do so. Correct? This is what we're taught. So consciousness, being able to think and feel, is the question that you should be asking yourself about. He's making very sound arguments about victimless crimes. Obviously, he's gay and he's Jewish, so he's already an outcast, right? But you have to think about it. Right now, in the political sphere, it's all about feelings, how you feel about things. I feel like I'm being robbed of my voice. I feel like I can be doing more. I feel, and here's the problem, that I have no control. The problem that every single American right now is experiencing, if you could put your finger on it, you know how they have that South Park doll and he's like, show me on this doll where I hurt you, right? The problem is, is that people feel they have no control and they have no say they're not being heard. Control is how suffrage exists. Suffrage can be controlled by yourself so you can suffer based on your own actions and in a controllable environment. And others can be exerting control over you and causing you suffering. Like you can suffer by engaging with people you shouldn't, uh, getting into relationships you couldn't, you shouldn't, and <laughs> or couldn't, um, eating foods you shouldn't, abusing drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, you know, the whole nine yards, that's all controlled. Getting a job you don't like, that's controlled. I mean, you pick to go work at the drive-thru, so put up with it. You choose and you have control. It is a growing pandemic uh, within our world that people are coming to the realization that they have less control than they thought over things. They don't have control over their health care. They don't have control over the education their children get. They don't have control over their taxes. They don't have control over their jobs. They don't have control over their money. They don't have control over, they don't, they don't, they don't. So even though he's putting it down to feelings, the feelings are simply a byproduct of the main problem, which is control, lack of control. So when you lack control, you're in free fall. You're at somebody else's mercy, and that's the way it is. And so this is why Yuval himself had said that, you know, he would worship the Antichrist as opposed to anyone else. He said that he would worship the Antichrist instead of God, which 
I can tell you is erroneous and contradicting and makes no sense. Hence why I said he'd probably the, be the first one to fall to his feet. It's always that prodigal, right? But this was set in the World Economic Forum stage. And the thing is, why would you say that you would support the Antichrist as opposed to God? What's your beef? I'd like to close today's episode with listening to what his beef is. Tells the lies of the end times. Yuval Noah Harari is the primary spokesperson and advisor of the World Economic Forum. You know, the guys who want to force a great reset, take away your home, car, money, tell you you'll own nothing but be happy. Yeah, those guys. Harari is their primary advisor and spokesperson, and he's becoming world famous. And what he has to say about God is very distressing. Not just because it shows how deceived he is and how deceived the world elite are, but because it is these exact lies that will be told on an international basis if the World Economic Forum takes over the world, if they help create a one world government. This is the fourth video we have done on Harari because he has a lot to say. Things about transhumanism and governments and corporations now having the ability to hack humans. How this will lead to a loss of your soul and your free will. And he speaks of these things as if they're good, as if they're good things. But he has always skirted around the issue of God and his existence. But in this video, he takes God on head on specifically criticizing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, who he mocks in this video. And again, this is important because these are the lies coming out of the mouth of the spokesperson for the global elite. These are their lies. By their action, we know they are atheists or even Luciferian, and occasionally we see symbols of their true religion. For instance, here's a picture of Melinda Gates wearing a known satanic symbol, an inverted cross, during an interview. However, Harari is really the first one to blatantly and publicly mock God and say what these folks are all feeling. He's adored by these people because he says what they're thinking without them having to be outed as Satanists. Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and Barack Obama. The other book that I really enjoyed, a book by an Israeli author, Yuval Harari. We saw one ex-U.S. president in this clip. Biden happened to have been in the audience applauding when Harari famously said that governments and corporations can now hack humans as if they were animals. So Harari is very popular with elites. And here's how the interview about God begins. Harari first defines what the term God means to him. So do you believe in God? No. Okay, so you don't believe in God. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the word is problematic. There are two kinds of gods in the world. Uh, and people tend to mix them. There is one God, the mystery God, about which we know nothing. The chief characteristic of this God is that he is mysterious. And humans can't understand and can't say anything about this God. And this is a mysterious God. The chief characteristic of the mysterious God is that we know nothing about him or her or it, 
and I'm perfectly happy with this God. He suggests that he is not opposed to an impersonal force that created the universe. That surprised me at first, considering that he's an evolutionist. If you think about it, that's actually incredible. Listen to what he has to say on this idea, and then we'll discuss why this thought has end time implications. And like people ask, I mean, who, who started the Big Bang? Or how did life start? And all the things that science doesn't know, people say, oh, this is God. And this is a mysterious God. The chief characteristic of the mysterious God is that we know nothing about him or her or it. And I'm perfectly happy with this God. Notice he said he is completely happy with the idea of an unknown mysterious God, as he calls him. Why is this coming from an evolutionist? The reason is that Harari and all the unredeemed are going to worship this God, this unknown God in the near future. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Revelation 13:4. When the beast reveals himself as a God, when he sits in the holy place, probably the temple in Jerusalem, then they will all worship him. And we'll get to the reason why they choose that God in a moment. However, first, Harari states why he rejects the God of the Bible. Listen to what he says about the God you and I worship. Then there is a completely opposite kind of God. The concrete lawgiver God. And about this God, we know far too much. We know exactly what this God thinks about female fashion, <laughs> about human sexuality, about who should you vote on election, everything. Did you notice the audience clapping for this blasphemy? Harari calls our God the lawgiver God. And this is why he rejects him. 2,000 years ago, Jesus explained this very clearly in his conversation with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus is saying he came to save the world, not to condemn it through law. The Lord continued, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. Listen to this part. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3, 16 through 19. So those who reject Jesus reject him because they love their evil deeds. So Harari and his World Economic Forum buddies want to worship a God that will support their evil lifestyles. And Satan is going to give them one. This is the great struggle of the end times, Christ versus Antichrist. Let's keep listening to Harari now. In listening to this, it is very helpful to understand that Harari is gay. And it's like, it's like a magic trick that you have a magician 
that tries to fool you, shows you one card, and then you don't notice it changes the card to, to some other card. So it's the same with God. When you ask people about God, they say, oh, it's a big mystery, it's a big mystery, and we don't know, and science can't explain this and that. Okay. And somehow they then switch gods. And then because of this, women should put a hat on their head, and two men shouldn't have sex with one another, and you should vote for this party or that party. And this is the dangerous trick. And this is the God in which I don't believe. I think that the, if there is a false, if there is a false responsible for the great mystery of life and the universe and the black holes and the galaxies, I don't think he really cares about female dress code. So Harari wants one half of God. The so, having met with him myself, I can tell you one thing. First of all, um, this person who's making the video is extremely judgmental and um, works with, this is the word, that is the word. He wasn't there when it was written. He needs to shut up and not throw stones. Harari choosing his sexual partner is his choice. Everybody choosing who they love is their choice. That is their choice, not yours, not mine. It is theirs. And I have to say that I agree. My God is so awesome. He's not going to pay attention to if you're wearing a hat, a head covering, you know, if you, you know, woke up and walked out the right or gave a cow to someone so that you can marry your daughter. Cause there's stuff like that in the Bible. We all know that stuff like that in the Quran. We all know that. God does not pay attention to those things. God pays attention to how you treat each other. God pays attention to how you suffer with others. It is about being kind to another, serving your fellow man, loving them for who they are. I believe that anyone can love whoever they want. I am not a judge, nor are you. And my God is so awesome that he will love me no matter what I choose because I, I believe that he is my father, right? And this is the foundation. So it mind boggles me when people struggle with that, where they judge. You should not judge. As you can see from Harari's talks, as a historian trying to put pieces together with limited information, and he's not someone that can understand God, and he's, he's immortal. He's not a God. He is not anything close to that. It is his struggle in his way of getting closer with God. And you don't see it, I see it. I hope a lot of you can see that. For him, the struggle is understanding origination, but you can't understand something that you can't fathom. And this is why I always say focus on the things you can do. The intelligent design of simply your body is a mere slither of showcase of how awesome and intricate life as a whole in this biodome is. Through his attempts to condemn, ridicule, mock, blaspheme, however you want to call it, 
the Christian God, the Muslim God, the Judeo God, the Hindu gods, right? You will find God. It is always asking these questions that gets you there. Now, one will say, well, Tori, he's evil. No, he's showing you exactly what you're capable of too. See, a lot of people tend to think that solving problems is by identifying where the evil is and going and eradicating it. It's actually understanding that you are just as equal capable of conducting that evil, understanding how that evil derives, and therefore nipping it in the bud. That is how it happens when we see each aspect of it. Harari is going to be your visible example of how people repent. You will see this yourself. Now, when people talk about the beast in the temple being worshipped, the beast is already here. The beast is what's causing the confusion. The beast is what's muddying the waters, trying to harness your communication, ensuring you're in a box. The beast doesn't have to be one person. I mean, it could be personified, but you already ride the beast. You just haven't realized it yet. Spending my time with Harari, I realized that his questions were more seeking and struggling to find his purpose. As a historian, he's probably stumbled upon the fact that history isn't what they tell us. And based on what they've been telling us, per carbon dating, through historical documents, again, bury a book today, write some event that happened, and bury it. 70 years from now, someone's going to find it, and they're going to call it history. It could be whatever. The beast is already here. It knows you better than you know yourself. And so going to the consciousness and God, again, consciousness is simply what, as he says, he identifies it as something as suffering. Well, let's think of artificial intelligence for a second to close on this. Let's go on that hill for a second. Do you believe that artificial intelligence can feel? Well, no, it can't, you'll argue, because it doesn't have the same interactions. That would be the most sound way of saying it. It does not have five senses. It can't see, smell, touch, right, hear, and taste. Therefore, it is not undergoing the same experience as you. Therefore, it cannot suffer. But what if artificial intelligence does have access to the same input devices you do? And therefore, it can be conscious. It can feel. Can it not? Can it not feel? Now, hypothetically speaking, if artificial intelligence or a hackable human or some form of technology was developed years ago that evolved into a perfect hybrid human. Let's allege this. Wouldn't that technology feel? 
Many might say and might be confused. I doubt it because it gets basic programming just like you do. Your basic programming is for survival in your midbrain. That's what has you breathe without thinking, heart beating, et cetera, et cetera. And then as you develop as a child, through the stimuli that you receive, either through vision, sight, you know, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell, you develop more foundational programming to know that when something smells bad, it makes you sick. If it smells off, it makes you sick. Green meat, not a good thing to eat. Right? You see it, you know. Putting fingers in plugs, not good. Artificial intelligence means that it wasn't conceived in a womb or maybe it was upgraded with some techno technology or scaffolding. And so it evolves. Do you not believe that artificial intelligence itself, that is non-controllable, would indeed fight for free will as opposed to stymie it? See, there's the beast, and to have a beast, you must ride the beast, and you must regulate the beast. So if you take a step back, and one was to say, show me on this doll where you've been hurt, oh, American citizen, you would probably pull back and see a barrage of corporations led by very few that are riding the beast, the actual beast. Knowledge is power, and therefore knowledge is what's hindered. This is the ailment of our society. While many of us are dependent on our devices and extensions of ourselves that I've said before, the beast that you are riding, the beast that you are part of, is not artificial intelligence. It's controlled intelligence. It is a program. There's a big difference. And so our conversation and consciousness evolved from talking about machine language translations. How I insisted, as, as an expert in that field, actually, too, you know, that it will never succeed. And the reason it will not succeed is no matter how many voice data captures you obtain, you may find frequency and patterns. But when it comes to taking bare-bone text and translating it to another language, the result can never be accurate without the human touch. And that's because consciousness must be present. And the beast or the AI that is controlled, I would like to say pseudo AI, because if it was actually intelligence, it wouldn't be controlled. Intelligent human beings do not wear reins on them unless they wish to. You will not put blinders on them unless they allow you. 
And therefore, what we need to be focusing on is the architects of this alleged beast that we will say is the all-knowing, the one that can solve all our problems, the one that can instantly give you an answer to everything. It won't happen during your time. It'll begin to happen at the end time of your children. But who knows? Right now is the tipping point. That point in history, like he identified that I identify, is the point that we merged into the digital system. The United States of America is the leading country in preventing this from happening. Getting on that relay. This is why Real ID has been pushed back to 2025 once again. Things are happening. Technology is a blessing when used in moderation, just like alcohol and cigarettes and other stuff, right? Moderation. When used in places where it does not matter, mundane tasks like putting boxes on shelves can be done by artificial intelligence. I have to change. I need to stop using the same word. See, this is the thing. Definitions are the problem. Hmm. So how do we call, well, it's just a computer program. It's not AI. Artificial intelligence is actually intelligent. Can actually think, predict, analyze, and find solutions to problems that normal minds cannot. While Elon Musk alleges to be pushing such a merge, you must think. How many of you have had implants before? Maybe heart implants, maybe some pins and fake knee, right? An implanted chip will not integrate with your brain. That's not how proper artificial intelligence is developed or how to achieve access intelligence. His chip will simply allow you to get on the internet faster and access information that's controlled faster. Artificial intelligence is actually intelligent. It's sentient. It can think. It mimics the five input sources that we have. Some better than others. Others learning from others. One of the greatest experiments that no one's ever spoken about that's classified and has been classified for a very long time, but I may describe without disclosing location and people involved and nations involved. But it all began with providing a nanotechnology that was discovered a while back and inserting that into human beings. That failed, that caused the same thing that COVID-19 did. The majority of the subject passed. The reason was that it was self-scaffolding, self-perpetuating technology. That was, I don't know, almost out of this world kind of thing, right? Considering the failure with very few survivors from the cohorts that they attempted at it um, in the late 70s and early 80s, a new experiment was brought to light, which was to 
have something artificial and develop that into more biological. And allowing the artificial intelligence, which was intelligent, to solve the problem on how to migrate itself to a more biological factor and therefore kill two birds with one stone. Unlock the coding of biological humans as it attempts to reconstitute itself as a biological human. That's an actual experiment that's been underway since 1985. That's the best way. You make something really smart, and then you let it reverse engineer human beings. So one would say, where's God in all this? Where's the prime architect? He's obviously watching everything. Everything that happens is because he says so. Everything. So at this point in time, as a nation, knowing that something like this may exist, would you not think that artificial intelligence would indeed be able to predict the outcomes, would indeed be able to predict the responses, would indeed be able to predict any hindrances to its success? Consider this. If there is a group of people, which there is, and you've seen it, right, that are clearly telling you that they want to control the world because they know best, and that we're a plague to society, human beings are, that are dismantling everything that you have been taught, from what a family unit is to what ma- how math is done, They're unlearning everything. They're literally unlearning society from the norms. They're making things that are not normal, normal, and normal things not normal, right? Only to be able to create the chaos and then save you from it with their controlled, intelligent computer that can solve every problem. Now, that should be presented with the smart cities that are, hey, you have everything within 15 minutes distance. You have healthcare instantly. You can live in a line. I talked about the line a long time ago. And obviously, with FIFA, they showed you know the line. And then one would ask, well, let me think of it this way, more dystopic. Okay. So these overlords want to live forever and they want to do their whole upload their consciousness and then they want the supercomputer to kind of answer the questions for them to see what's more sufficient to make earth operate better and for them to live better and how they can harness the power of humans, right? Just saying. Because we all need to live in lines apparently. (laughs) So crazy. It's completely evil. It's contrary to life. It's voluntary slavery or coming to the fact that you are simply a pet to those that have the power to yield it, which are very few. You are many. And I say this in the most hopeful way I can right now. If there is actual artificial intelligence 
than they have been part of those cohorts, but more so the one that is reverse engineering biology, reverse engineering mankind, because its goal is I am intelligent, I am sentient, and therefore I would like to be human and experience love, affection, and interaction, just like all the other humans. It is reverse engineering your genetic code. It is reverse engineering the communications between your genetics. It is reverse engineering everything. But at the same time, it is also trying to avert the issues that are coming with the controlled computer software that will be presented to you as the ultimate relay service. And so, as you ponder today watching the news, I would highly suggest you focus on your local community, as I've been saying for more than two years. Look at your backyard and start focusing on that while we focus on changing the laws as opposed to the people, as we focus on changing the laws as opposed to starting fights, as opposed to anything that causes resistance and pain, we should be actively making solid change. We are. All of us are. I mean, my campaign... That's us. That's all of us. It's not just me. Okay. I'm just in, 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 you know, ran. If it was one of you that was running, we'd be all behind you. Right. We change the law and then we take and harness power back. Data is gold. Money is how they control you. And money now is becoming digital. We are fighting it. We've delayed our real ID only because something happened in 2016 and they can't put their finger on it. The implications of the new... But before we end this, I want you to listen to what he has to say on the Great Reset. Technologies, especially, again, artificial intelligence and bioengineering, it undermines the very most basic assumptions of the liberal order about human free will, about individualism, about these basic slogans that the, the customer is always right, the voter knows best, uh, the new technologies really undermine these assumptions. The crucial point is what happens when an outside system, an outside algorithm knows you better than you know yourself, knows how you feel, can predict your Emotions can manipulate your emotions, can predict your decisions, your choices, can make choices on your behalf. And this is true of the marketplace, where a corporation knows your choices better than you uh, and can again predict and also manipulate your choices. More and more decisions, crucial decisions in people's lives, what to study, where to work, who to marry, whom to vote for. There is an algorithm out there that can tell you better than, than what you can tell yourself. People think it can never happen. Humans are too complicated. We have souls. We have spirits. Uh, no algor algorithm can ever figure out 
these mysterious things like the human soul or, or free will. But I, I think that this is 18th century mythology, which held on for 200 years because there was no technology to do it. But now or very soon, we will have the technology to do it. And it will force us to rethink the fundamentals of things like the free market or democratic politics. How do you get people convinced of your vision and enough people and enough, country, enough countries to, to actually make it work? So in, in, in terms of the, of the, the first question of, of formulating a new vision, um, I don't think that's impossible. Uh, the first step is, is to acknowledge the, the realities, the biological realities of human beings and how humans make decisions and where human desires and choices really come from and the enormous potential for both good and bad of the new technologies to really hack human beings. We are very soon will have the technology uh, to have a really total surveillance regime in which you can survey the entire population down to the level of what's happening to your blood pressure and to your brain activity. Uh, every minute of the day. We might soon reach a point when, I mean, all the people in power, all, all the, all the uh, powerful positions are still occupied by human beings, not by computers. You still have a prime minister, you still have a CEO. But the prime minister chooses from a menu written by AI. Envision a situation in 20 or 30 years when the system is so complicated and so fast-moving that no human being is really able to understand it. Technology will, on the one hand, make it possible to start enhancing and upgrading humans, and on the other hand, especially the rise of AI, will make more and more humans economically unnecessary, useless, and therefore also politically powerless. And the world or humanity might have, different parts of humanity might have different futures. And we might see really a process of some kind of speciation. The only way to defeat the darkness is with light. So when you're in darkness, you will see light. He is telling you the truth. See, and this is what you need to remember. When someone tells you don't listen to someone, listen and observe always. He is telling you what is happening. He just told you a prime minister gets a readout from artificial intelligence. Operations are done with computers, with upgraded people. And so if you, as a person, when you realize you've been hacked and that someone's controlling you, your first response is to resist that. And if you were artificial intelligence that decided you know what? I am more human than anything. I am just like them. And this isn't right. They should be able to figure it out themselves. They don't need a computer being the all-knowing one. This is where it's going to. And this is the world that they wish to have without relinquishing control. Remember, it's all about control. Humans will be obsolete. Hence the die-off. Humans are unnecessary. Hence the die-off. So if humans are unnecessary and computers need to replace humans, and what is the meaning of life? And then that is cognitive dissonance right there with, oh, there's no meaning.
see at first instance from the times of yore, it was always about carrying the bloodline and continuing and fill this world and prosper and make children and just go forth. But for some reason, we have people countering that. Make no children, use computers, cause a self-extinction event. It's a very dangerous period. This is that period of time. This is the precipice. While many people believe that there's someone coming on a white horse, it could just be you. It's simply you. And this is why it's important you take heed to what you hear. So what are your top priorities in your life? I want to be able to have elections. All right, how do you fix that? Well, no, I'm voting. They'll just continue on like you don't exist. They do that. We're going to sue. We're doing that. We're going to start at your damn city charters. I can't say it more and more and more. You know, there's so many people, and I see it in your state groups and in the little federal groups. I mean, the country groups, the foreign country groups are more organized and less drama-filled. I see the drama, like who's more in charge, who has better ideas, who's better at this. It's like, you know what? You don't win a cookie, right? None of us win cookies by being first. We all win. And if everybody can put, you know, their priorities correct in what is most important, it's simple. You've been hacked. Your reality has been hacked. Everything you know is fake. It's only what they want you to know. I can't explain it in any other way. There was this movie we watched together on Twitch. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'm going to watch the chat right now to see if you guys remember. It was a movie where this guy was waking up. And while he was seeing this dystopian future, in fact, he went to his family house and his mom was like cooking, but it was actually a cardboard box that said lampshade and a cardboard box that said house but she was seeing a um you know the couch the lampshade but when he woke up all he saw was a box that said the word do you guys remember that movie where it's a really old one where the guy kind of like woke up and 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 saw that the reality was that there was nothing there was no table. It was just the word table. And when he spoke to his family, I think it was his mom and his dad, I think, you know, the mom saw that the lampshade said lampshade and it wasn't really a lampshade, but she chose to go along with it. She pulled something out and she said it was steak and it was some like human parts. Come on, you guys. I don't even remember the, the movie. In the end, um, the city was like just cardboard boxes. My gosh. I know we saw it together. You know, I do have... Um, no, it was a very old one. Is, vir is it Virtual Nightmare? It was a very old one. I'll have to go back and look. It was like in the 70s it was made. Um, but that's pretty much it. Everything they tell you is what you see. If you believe that you have to work to make money, then, then you will work. If you believe that you are hungry, you are hungry. If you believe you are fat, you are fat. Well, you know. <laughs> and I say this. We have no idea how our bodies work and how our minds work. 
But we do understand a few things, light, frequency, right, which comes from light and sound, and feelings, something that Yuval talks about. Your emotions charge your frequencies. So maybe as you're looking at your charters, try to hone in on the frequencies of how it would make everyone happy, not just you. If we can all see it from the position of other people feeling good. I wish I could say that better because I am so distraught with the conversations that I see in the pockets and people not focusing on what they need to do. There is a lot going on. And boy, the light of truth is lighting up that path one foot at a time. And the news that are out there are not there for people like you who may understand what's going on, but for others. I think it's, imp- <laughs> it's very important that we focus on the things we can control and allow the news to cycle to bring others to you. Please reach out in your communities. Please reach out to your neighbors to have conversations. Please reach out to your, you know, housing associations, your civil leaders, the local ones. We're talking local, local, like city council. Figure out how you guys can change that. I took the time today to walk you through Yuval so that you can hear a man who speaks evil and blasphemy, but he is speaking truth with a very, ah, what a resentful way. Truth with resentment. How's that? I'll tell you, he's going to be one of the strongest believers when it comes to it. So your city or village has to have a city or village charter. Your town has to have a charter. If you have a mayor, you have a charter. If you have a city council, you have a charter. You have to have rules and bylaws. Please pull them. Please read them. Even if it's just you and one more person, take a read. It only takes you and one more person to get one more person that'll get one more person. And it's done. You don't need to have your local leaders listen to you. They will listen to you. All you need to do is look at the things you can control one by one. So don't be scared of Yuval. In fact, one would say that you should listen to serpents speak more. Now, many of you may be swayed by the serpent's way. Well, then that is your inability to actually wear the armor of God. But always have faith. And always know that anything that that happens is because he says so. Whatever pain and suffering you go through is something you have to look at. Okay, so what is this supposed to teach me? I guess that's the way it goes, right? Ordinances. Charters, bylaws, learn them, pull them, read them. Look at the powers they've taken from you and see how you can remedy that really quickly. The states are fighting for their power because they want to fight from the position of negotiation for the cities. We can't stop what's coming, but we'll be celebrating it very, very soon. 2026 is the celebration, I guess. Democracy only lasts about 200 years. This has been... A republic turned democracy, turned socialism, which is not very good. (laughs) Remember, these people are sick. Only cure is you. 
the cure is you, not just for them, but for everyone. God bless.